All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. Hi everyone, welcome back to episode six of Professionally Embarrassing. Thank you for all of the lovely feedback you sent us on the last episode which was one that we really felt very strongly about. Everything from structural barriers to pupillage, applicants securing pupillage, and to the unimaginable trauma of mothers having multiple children removed. We are over halfway through the season now, with just five more episodes to go before we give ourselves a deserved little summer break. We have so much to talk about today, though, from the policy issues around undoing adoption orders to adoption by a parent who's no longer married to the biological parent and no longer in a relationship with them, to burnout, to non-traditional families, and lots more. So let's get cracking, and I think I'm kicking us off this week with What Did You See on Bailey?, So the case I've picked this week is called AX and BX and Others, 2021 EWHC 1121. It's before Mrs. Justice Tice, and it was handed down at the end of April. And it concerned an application by 18-year-old A and 16-year-old B, as they're referred to in the judgment, to revoke adoption orders, which were granted to their adopters, Mr. and Mrs. X, in 2011. So 10 years prior, they had been adopted and now they were seeking to undo the adoption orders in effect. A and B's mother is referred to as Miss T in the judgment. And the application that they made was made under the inherent jurisdiction. So I've previously explained on this podcast what the inherent jurisdiction is. It's a catch-all power where there isn't any existing legislation or case law which applies to the situation. So there is no legislation which regulates this sort of application which is why the application was made under the inherent jurisdiction. The case is a really interesting one from a policy perspective, because, of course, the intention of an adoption order is to give the adoptive family a sense of permanency and of certainty. If everyone could go around unmaking adoption orders, then that would cause a lot of anxiety to prospective adopters. So I'll start with the background, which is that A and B were placed in foster care in 2007, At that time, they were three and five. They continued to have supervised contact with their mother, which was positive twice a week. In 2009, care proceedings commenced, and those concluded in 2010 with the making of care and placement orders. By then, they were eight and six. They had a younger sibling who had been born during the course of those proceedings and was a part of those proceedings, but that younger sibling remained in their birth mother's care. The birth mother wanted A and B to be with her, but ultimately didn't contest the making of a care order or the plan for adoption. In November 2010, so later on in the year after the care proceedings had concluded, A and B were matched with Mr and Mrs X. In their documents, which were filed as part of these proceedings, Mr and Mrs X raised concerns about the lack of consistent and reliable adoption support for the placement which was provided to them after the making of adoption orders. Issues arose quite early in the placement, very sadly. Issues around A and B's behaviour and the adopter's responses and the difficulties in support being provided and taken up. At paragraph 72 of the judgment, there are a number of observations, which I'll read out in full because I think they are interesting in respect of the support that was in place. A and B appear to have had limited outside support to help them adjust to their lost security and routine and their very different new home. It was in this context they vented their distress and anger towards Mr and Mrs X. There was a deficit in appropriate support in what appears now, with the benefit of hindsight, to have been a poor and insensitively managed introduction and transition to Mr and Mrs X's home. The anticipated robust post-adoption support plan was not in place, with the result that Mr and Mrs X, understandably, felt let down. 
It appears a combination of factors may have contributed to this, including the social worker in the local authority with most knowledge of the case, leaving her post about the time of the adoption, insufficient alternative arrangements being put in place and the position possibly being further complicated as the first three years following the adoption support was to be funded by the first local authority, although provided by the second local authority. So there were two local authorities involved here, the local authority at the time that the adoption orders were made and the local authority that was responsible for providing the adoption support. Continuing with the quote, Mr. and Mrs. X were inexperienced parents and unprepared for the insecurity, anger and distress felt by A and B following their removal from foster care and losing their natural family contact. So in effect, the groundwork had been laid for this placement to eventually break down. A found her birth mother on social media in 2015. And in early 2018, A and B started having contact with their birth mother without the adoptive parents' knowledge. Eventually, an agreement was drawn up uh, between the adoptive parents and the birth mother, setting out the contact arrangements and the expectations. But despite all that, in autumn 2018, the relationship between A, B and the exes completely broke down. A and B have now been living back with their birth maternal family for some time. A had her own child who was born in 2020 and lives with the birth mum and her three younger children. B has been staying with her birth mother's aunt. The adoptive placement totally broke down and A is only having limited contact with the adoptive parents and that's been the situation since 2018. Care proceedings were issued and those concluded with a child arrangements order for B in favour of the birth mother which was supported by a family assistance order and there had also been an earlier child arrangements order which had been made for A prior to her 17th birthday, she was now 18. The Guardian in those proceedings raised the issue of revocation of the adoption orders which is how these applications came about. During these proceedings, A gave really powerful evidence about how the legal position affected her life day to day. What does it matter, we might ask, that the adoption orders remain in place if she is in effect living back home with her birth family and doesn't really have a relationship with the adoptive parents anymore? But A says, well, she has a surname which she doesn't identify with as her name. When her child was born last year, she wanted him to be known by the birth mother, Miss T's surname, but it wasn't possible because all the records were in the name X. She wanted to feel a part of her birth mother's family, but she felt like the odd one out. And she said that she felt a sense of loss when she moved from her foster care of three years, when she was having regular contact with her mum and her sibling, to then go to no contact with either the foster carer or her birth family. A and B's advocates were saying that a and B were trapped by a legal fiction, as were Mr. and Mrs. X. The orders that were in place just did not reflect the reality of the situation as it now is. In this case, none of the parties disputed that the order should be revoked, but the issue was more about how the court approaches the legal principles, because just because all the parties support the revocation of the adoption orders, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the outcome. It is indeterminative of the outcome. The court still has to consider the legal principles and whether it should exercise its discretion under the inherent jurisdiction to revoke the adoption orders. Mrs. Justice Tice, at paragraph 80 of the judgment, restates the legal principles, which I will set out here. An adoption order is a transformative order that changes the child's status in a way that is intended to be legally permanent. Once made, the effect of an adoption order is to extinguish any parental responsibility of the natural parents and any continuing legal relationship between the natural parent and the child. By virtue of Section 67, ACA 2002, the child is treated in law as if born as the child of the adoptive parents. The only statutory ground for revocation is provided by section 55 ACA 2002, when pursuant to section one subsection seven, the court's paramount consideration is the child's welfare throughout his life. There are strong public policy reasons for not permitting the revocation of the adoption orders once made based on the intended permanent and lifelong nature of such orders, the damage to the lifelong commitment of adopters if there was a possibility of challenge to the validity of the order, and the impact on the availability of prospective adopters if they thought the natural parents could, even in limited circumstances, secure the return of the child after the adoption order was made. There is jurisdiction to revoke an adoption order under the inherent jurisdiction, but any discretion is severely curtailed where an adoption order has been lawfully and properly made and can only be exercised in highly exceptional and very particular circumstances, per the case of Webster. Although each case will turn on its own facts, 
the highly exceptional circumstances must comprise more than mistake or misrepresentation of serious injustice and amount to matters such as fundamental breach of natural justice. And finally, welfare can, in appropriate cases, be taken into account in deciding whether to exercise the court's discretion where the highly exceptional and particular circumstances of the case justify it. The extent to which it can or should be taken into account will vary depending on the circumstances of the particular case. So I've just read out paragraph 80. That's where the key legal principles are set out for listeners if you want to go have a read of them. Mrs. Justice Tice then applies those to this particular case. And she notes that the order which is being sought reflects the lived reality of the parties. A and B feel really strongly about their legal status and the exes have accepted that the relationship has irretrievably broken down and seem to be distressed whenever people call them up, authorities like the police, things like that. And they have to explain, yes, we are the legal parents, but we're not really involved with A and B anymore. The court effectively found that the only factor that went against making the order that was being sought is ultimately the public policy issues, uh, the public policy issues that I restated earlier about the panic for prospective adopters if they think that an adoption order could be unmade and the purpose of an adoption order being made for life and not being taken back or unmade. But Mrs. Justice Tyson, weighing up that factor against all the counterbalancing factors, ultimately concludes that this is a highly exceptional and very particular case where the order should be revoked. So that's that judgment, which is very sad and is certainly not where everyone wanted to be end up, certainly not where the exes wanted to end up. And it's something which perhaps could have been prevented if there had been appropriate post-adoption support put in place or if there had been some consideration maybe of whether or not these children should have been placed in long-term foster care given their enduring relationships with their birth family. I would caution against any suggestion that this judgment does open up the floodgates. Uh, I don't want to panic prospective adopters because the court makes very clear that this is only in highly exceptional circumstances and in the very particular circumstances of this case, but it does raise a number of issues about how effective post-adoption support is. And we talked on the last podcast about support post-proceedings. We were talking in the context of care proceedings and support being given to parents when they've had children removed. But it is an ongoing theme about when judicial oversight ends and we look at what happens to children after proceedings conclude, it just seems the support seems to drop off a cliff and things seem to fall by the wayside. And that's something that we need to be considering more seriously because there are so many implications. This child is going to be in that placement, is going to be subject to that order potentially until they're 18. And if that support's not in place, you're setting them up for disaster. Do you have any thoughts on this, Maddie? I think it's another example, perhaps in a different direction, of a theme that I think is now emerging from the whole of this podcast, all of our episodes, which is that the local authorities are overstretched and are not able to fulfil the functions that they're meant to fulfil. The fact that the social worker who had most knowledge of the family and most support offered had left um, and there wasn't enough support to replace that role. The fact that the adoptive parents felt left stranded and the fact that there wasn't sufficient understanding of whether this was in fact the right placement for these children all indicates in the same way, although in a different factual sense, the things that we've talked about before about how difficult it must be to function appropriately as a local authority without the resources and support that they need. And this is just another example. And I feel like, as I say, this is a theme that's now emerging, that we can see that these lack of resources, this lack of guidance and training and appropriate support for the local authority has real consequences in lots of different ways whether it's the case that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in terms of doing entirely the wrong thing legally or this case where the family just is not able to access the appropriate support they need to make the placement work it's two sides of the same coin I think in my view and it's it's really disappointing and I think it's just another example of how real lives are impacted by the ongoing potential failings of state bodies. Yeah that's a really fair observation and I think that on the priority list for local authorities, they are going to be firefighting the urgent cases, the babies who have injuries, the children who need to be removed urgently, the care proceedings matters. Once care proceedings conclude and a child has been placed for adoption and adoption orders are made, that child really does fall off the priority list because they have so many other things to deal with. And that's a sad reality of of the times that we live in right now. We just don't have anyone who has enough time to give to the children who aren't at immediate risk. And we have to remember as well, for anyone who's not familiar with this particularly, or as a student or not particular practitioner of family law, that 
adopting children away from birth families when those birth families continue to live and exist and have alternative families is a very controversial piece of legislation that England is quite unique and they don't do this in a lot of countries in Europe it's not possible in a lot of other countries this idea of non-consensual adoption that you can adopt children away from parents without the parents agreeing to it it's a very controversial thing and because of that because of the implications that it has because of the long-lasting social familial and legal impact of that order we owe it to these children and to these families to get it right and it's very upsetting to hear that it's probably more important for local authorities to place children quickly and get them into a stable placement and hope that things work out than it is to really analyse whether this is the right option for these children and whether severing those legal ties and severing that family bond is actually going to work in the long run. Is that what is best for these children? And it all feeds into the debate about the nature of adoption and whether this is something that is sustainable. And obviously, I think on balance, it probably is, but it does have pitfalls. And the local authority, unfortunately, it's at their door again to be alive to those pitfalls. Yeah, I have two thoughts arising out of that. One, which is that I thought it was noteworthy that the children were eight and six when the care proceedings commenced, which is quite old for children to be placed for adoption. It's quite usual to see children who are toddlers, babies, two, three, four, maybe at a stretch, five, but at six to eight, where they're having ongoing contact with their birth mother, and it's not the case that they will forget her easily. They have an enduring relationship with her, and it's something that they will actively miss. I do wonder whether the local authority and the court had given enough thought to whether adoption was the right decision for these children given their ages. The other thing that I think is interesting is the fact that one of the children found the birth mother on social media. Now that's something that is a very recent development about children being able to track down their natural families on social media and it's probably not something that any of us had in mind when all the legislation was drafted or when we started developing norms of what happens after a child is placed for adoption. And it's something we really have to give thought to, because if it is increasingly likely that children are going to be able to track down their birth parents, then the importance of post-adoption support comes under increased scrutiny, because we need to, we need to almost assume that that's what they will do. And when they do do that, what support is going to be in place for their adopters and what support is going to be in place for them. It's a matter of when rather than if really in, in, in the times we live in now. Yeah also on that point I noticed not to jump ahead too much in sections but there was a BBC Sounds program about adoptive children finding their birth parents on social media. There was an article written on it in BBC News on the 12th of May so only about two weeks ago about the impact that finding your adoptive parents has on the adoptive placement and I think the story is available on BBC Sounds it's called the Today program and it's based on Claire and Ed so if anyone's interested in that there is resources available to hear more about it. What have you got for me this week Maddie? So I'm also doing adoption it's a bit of an adoption themed week but mine is a happy adoption case which I'm pleased about it's called Re-E, Adoption by One Person, um, and it came out on the 18th of May 2021, so very recently, and it was before Mr Justice Cobb sitting in Leeds. And it was about the statutory interpretation of Section 51 of the Adoption and Children Act 2002, which governs all of the adoptions in the UK, and it also contains all the controversial provisions that some people don't like. The facts are these. There's two parents, Mrs. A and Mrs. B, who were in a relationship together and had one child who's called Theo, it's not his real name, in the judgment. And what happened with Theo was that Mrs. A would be the biological mother of him and they would use a sperm donor and then Mrs. B adopted him successfully via section 51 and she became Theo's mum so he now has two mums one biological one adoptive they then decided to have a second child and they chose the same sperm donor so the children could be biologically related and on this occasion it was agreed that Mrs B would be the biological mother and Mrs A would adopt the baby Mrs B became pregnant and in 2018 the child is born and in the judgment she's called Emma now Shortly after Emma's first birthday, the relationship between Mrs A and Mrs B came to an end, and this was before Mrs A had had the opportunity to adopt Emma. So the proceedings came before the court on a technical point about whether Mrs A, on her own, could adopt Emma without being the partner, civil partner or spouse of Mrs A, 
because the rules under section 51 are very outdated and don't give this particular situation much thought because they were formulated in 2002 before the prevalence of many LGBTQ relationships and before the prevalence of sperm donors and things like that. And essentially what the current rule is, is that for one person to adopt a child, they have to either be the partner, civil partner or spouse of the parent of the child. Obviously in this case, Mrs. B is the parent, but Mrs. A is not her civil partner or her spouse. They were never married. So the question for the court is, could she be realistically seen to be the partner of Mrs. B? Because they're not in a romantic relationship. They're not in an intimate sexual relationship. But what the lawyer for Mrs. B says is that they are nonetheless in what's called an enduring family relationship, which is the test under the interpretation of section 51 for the purposes of this adoption. So it's what we call a lacuna in the law. It's a gap in the statutory provisions that mean that some cases such as this one, particularly on these facts, fall through the wayside where you haven't adopted the child while you're still together, which would have been straightforward under section 51. You then separate and the court has to see what it can do to basically allow the intended adoption, the intention of the family to take place. Now, the very positive thing about this case, which I think you very rarely see as family lawyers, is that the parents, Mrs. A and Mrs. B, are very good at co-parenting. They have a fantastically amicable relationship. They do birthdays and Christmases together. They completely share care of the children. So they have like a 5-2, 5-2 setup for the children so that the children share all of their time between the two of them. But one of them is in another relationship. So there's no question that they're not in an intimate slash sexual relationship. But they are very much a close family unit. They remain partners in parenting and they have made a commitment to each other to continue to co-parent until the children are adults and, and onwards. And obviously Emma, the little baby, the new baby, is only about one at this stage. So they are making a very significant commitment to her to continue to parent. So the question for the court is, can the adoption order be made because although these two people are not in a relationship bracket sexual, can they be said to be two people? And this is under section 144.4 of the Adoption and Children Act, which is the definition section, that they can be a couple or partners if they are two people, whether of different sexes or the same sex, living as partners in an enduring family relationship. So that's the area that the court needs to interpret properly to work out whether they can allow Mrs. A to adopt Emma. Anyone who didn't go to law school will know that, will not know that a huge part of the legal jurisprudence in the UK is basically looking at statutes and trying to make the wording of the statute fit into the situation that you need it to. So this happens across the board, not just in family law. And the role of judges in a lot of ways is to interpret the law and to say, well, this is actually what parliament meant when they said this, this or this. And that's what the judge is being tasked with on this case is can they reasonably be said to be two people living as partners in an enduring family relationship, despite the fact they're not together. And so Mr. Justice Cobb gives a very thorough overview of the law and how to interpret it. And he draws parallels with the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act um, of 2008, which has a very similar test for parental orders, which are slightly different to adoption orders, but the consequences are the same and looks at the jurisprudence of the HFEA cases, looks at the history of how this statutory clause has previously been interpreted, and whether there is evidence that indicates that these two people will remain as a family unit despite not being in a relationship. And the judgment's very good. Again, I would implore anyone to read the full thing. It's very helpful, especially if you do any kind of adoption or surrogacy work. But at the end, he draws the threads together in his conclusion. And I think the conclusion is the most important part of it. So what he says is this. When interpreting legislative provisions, the court must have regard to the underlying purpose of the specific requirement within the act. So for anyone who remembers constitutional law, this is the parliamentary intention. What did parliament mean when they did this? Dicey, all of that. First year law school for anyone who went. They must look at the purpose of the specific requirement within the Act and ensure the interpretation does not go against the grain of the intentions of Parliament and creates a sensible result. This can include some consideration of child welfare, but child welfare will not be paramount because there's also an ongoing debate. Sorry to get very academic on, on this section of the podcast, but there's an ongoing debate within family law about when what we call the paramountcy principle, which is section one of the Children Act, that is the court must have regard to the child's welfare above all else. When does it apply 
in terms of each decision of the family court. Does it apply to every single decision the family court makes, case management, fact findings, whatever? Or does it only apply to substantive decisions in relation to welfare and ongoing life? And what Mr Justice Cobb says in this is that this particular application by Mrs A doesn't have the paramountcy principle governing it because it's not about whether the adoption should happen, it's about whether Mrs A can even make the adoption application because the only way she can make the adoption application is if she's permitted to under section 51. And the question for the court is, does section 51 even allow her to make this application? So what he says, and I think very cleverly, is this is not a child's welfare as paramount decision. It's a matter for the court looking at all the circumstances, which applies in lots of different areas. Malvika and I wrote an article about it for notification of fathers and relinquishment and all that kind of thing. So there's lots of areas where the paramountcy principle doesn't apply to particular elements of the application. And this is one of those times. So he says child welfare will not be paramount. In interpreting the phrase living as partners in an enduring family relationship, it is also reasonable to have regard to the case law generated under Section 54 of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 2008, as I mentioned earlier, given that there is a a similar legal test and b that the legal, personal, emotional, psychological and social consequences of adoption orders and parental orders are so similar. So he's drawing a very much parallel between the two, which means this case could also be used in support of a Section 54 application as well. He says the issue of whether people are living as partners in an enduring family relationship is a question of fact and degree. It is a matter for the court to consider in every case. It is not necessary for the partners to be sharing the same property in order to be living in a family relationship. What is required is an unambiguous intention to create and maintain family life and a factual matrix which is consistent with that intention. And obviously, in this case, both of them had made a very significant commitment to the children. They were co-parenting effectively. Mrs. B entirely supported this application. She very much wanted Mrs. A to be able to adopt Emma in the same way that Mrs. B had adopted Theo. So there was a very much a universal intention behind this. Cobb says Section 144 of the Adoption and Children Act 2002 should be read in a way which gives effect to Article 8, i.e. it does not create unnecessary or disproportionate interference with the right to respect the family life of all involved. He then says, and I think this is key, there is no rule that requires that intimacy, conjugality or cohabitation be a component of an enduring family relationship. These are not requirements for married applicants, nor are they requirements in relation to parental orders under the HFEA 2008, which requires the applicants for that order to be living as partners in an enduring family relationship. In the facts of this case, family life exists between Mrs A and the child Emma. A very notable aspect of that family life is the care and arrangements which Mrs A and Mrs B had previously made for Theo, Much can be deduced about the relationship from this. Integrated family relationships have continued for all four members of the family, notwithstanding the separation. The law permits me to conclude that Miss A and Miss B are living as partners in an enduring family relationship. For the reasons set out above on the particular facts of the case, I'm persuaded that Miss A is entitled to bring the application for an adoption order in relation to Emma. Subject to my satisfaction on welfare grounds of the appropriateness of the order, the scene is set for Emma to have the same social and emotional advantages and status as Theo, whom she plainly regards as a brother. So essentially, she's allowed to make the application and it's very likely that that application will succeed for her to adopt Emma in the same way that her previous partner adopted Theo. And I thought that was a really interesting case, both academically, and I'm sorry for all the tangents that I went on during that, but also factually, it's really nice to see that given the right factual picture, the law can work for people in the way that it's supposed to. Now, I'm not saying that Section 51 of the Adoption Children Act is fit for purpose. It isn't because there's these gaps that exist. And the fact that these parents had to even go to court and have this judgment and all this stress is obviously not great and wouldn't have happened again if they were a traditional family. But it's nice to see that judges are very willing to interpret the law in a way that benefits society and benefits people in the 21st century. And their lawyer in the case, Mr. Taylor, Oh, no, I apologise. Mr. Taylor acted for the local authority and set out that they also agreed with the plan. And he set out that it's 2021. These kind of families, these kind of relationships are very normal. They're very common. And the law needs to keep pace with what society demands of it. And I think that's a really interesting point to take from this, that family lawyers, one of the reasons that family lawyers are so committed to family law is because it's a reflection of the society we live in. And I think this is a good example of, of that kind of case. So happy all round and obviously best of luck to Emma and her family. Thoughts? 
we are going to sound like a broken record because we do talk about the policing of non-traditional families on this podcast a lot but there are many elements of the law and of society as you say because the law is a reflection of society whether explicitly or implicitly it polices parenthood in the sense of elevating romantic or sexual relationships over non-intimate relationships why is that how did we arrive at that because what this case seems to do is move things on in our understanding of what families look like. Why should two people who are not in a relationship not be able to be parents to the same child? A relationship that, if anything, is more stable because it isn't subject to the unpredictability of a romantic or sexual relationship. Arguably, it provides a more solid foundation for parenthood than what we would normally consider as parenthood. It relates quite well to my podcast recommendation, which I'll come on to later, which is the Strangers Making Babies documentary, which is about people who choose someone to co-parent with in a non-romantic, non-sexual relationship. I'll come on to that because I don't want to skip ahead. But It is a nice way of seeing how the law is evolving with society in what we perceive a family to be. Yeah, and I'm sure that both of us could talk at length about if we could ask Parliament to make changes to statute, where would we start? And there's about 50 areas of family law that is massively falling behind the requirements of a 21st century society. But I do think that, thankfully, judgments like this indicate that there is enough scope at the moment to at least keep our heads above water in terms of keeping pace with society and LGBTQ plus families. And as you say, there is some prima facie evidence. In fact, it's in the book I had recommended last week, um, non-traditional models of families, that there is an argument for more intense, more prolonged stability when sexual or conjugal relationships are not involved. And that's prima facie. It depends on a lot of different elements and obviously depends on the nature of the relationship between the two people. But it's certainly not in any suggestion that these parents are less capable or less able to meet the needs of their children. And in fact, in this case, all they have done is work uniquely together to support the interests of their two children. And that's always really, really lovely to see as a family lawyer. The other quick thing I just wanted to mention is one of the difficulties with Section 51 is if Miss A and Miss B had been married and separated, there's specific reference to in the statute to if they separate, one of them can still adopt the baby. So it's still placing marriage as a gold standard, which is a problem because we live in a society, particularly in the UK, and I don't know why this is, I'll try and find out and get back to you, but the UK is obsessed with marriage. And if you look at family law statutes across the board, marriage is the gold standard. You get more benefits, you get more advantages, you get more respect in the law, and you get more opportunities to do things if you were married and there must be something wrong with that and it just this is a real indicator that if these women had decided maybe they didn't obviously they probably didn't want to but if they decided to get married and then separated none of this would have happened and they would have been fine so it's an indicator of how very much parliament still regards marriage as a gold standard and for very little justification I mean why these people are clearly very stable and very able to take care of these children there's no indication that marriage would have suited them better so I think that's worth flagging as well yeah we could have a whole episode on marriage and and not be able to cover everything we'd want to cover the rights of cohabitees a father automatically gets parental responsibility if they're married to the mother whereas if they're unmarried then they have to be on the birth certificate and that's how they get parental responsibility yeah I totally agree with you that marriage is held as a gold standard and there's no reason for it to be so, especially considering the increasing divorce rate and and the inherent instability of marriage now. It's not the marriage for life model that may have existed 50, 60, 70 years ago. It, It just isn't. Right. Moving on. What is your book podcast talk recommendation for the week? I think you hinted at it earlier. Yeah, I watched a, I think it's a four-part series called Strangers Making Babies, which is available on 4ODs. You can watch it online for free. And it's about people who go through a matching process to find someone who they may want to co-parent with. So removing romance, sex, any sort of intimate relationship from the equation and focusing simply on finding someone who shares the same parenting values as you and shares the same goals in terms of having a child and then matching them and seeing how that works. By and large, the people who become involved in this process either just haven't found a romantic relationship or found someone that they want to have a child with, but desperately want a child. And so they go through this process to try and find some stability for themselves. And they would prefer that to, for instance, having a sperm donor, but then ultimately raising the child on their own. It is a fascinating social experiment and I went on a bit of a 
black hole on the internet looking at all the commentary about it. People were really outraged by the prospect of picking someone at random who you don't know, a stranger to have a baby with, as opposed to being in an enduring, loving relationship with someone. And I don't actually understand where that's coming from. How's that any different to being in a long-term relationship with someone and then finding out they're not necessarily the person you should be with or the person you thought they were? There is always unpredictability and uncertainty in, in any kind of relationship and trying to place some sort of artificial gloss on relationships to say well this relationship is more stable than that relationship because you know more about the other person I, I don't think that's right because I think there's a lot to endorse in this process I think there's a lot to that there's a lot that I thought made sense you effectively spend a lot of time with another person talking about the issues that matter in respect to parenting and what I find from personal experience is when you're in a relationship with someone that's not the first thing on your agenda certainly not at our age you talk about your priorities in terms of the relationship so the focus is totally different when you're having a co-parenting relationship as opposed to when you're having a romantic relationship and arguably that sets a firmer foundation for eventually having children than a romantic relationship and we also know from the work that we do that romance really does muddy the picture when parents separate when parties separate and they end up in children proceedings in particular biting chunks out of each other a lot of it is because of the toxic breakdown of the romantic relationship you know things like adultery or uh, jealousy and things like that if that could be removed entirely from the equation arguably that's a far healthier starting point for any child so it is a really interesting program which raises a number of ethical issues by the end of the program not many of uh, the participants do decide to proceed with the co-parent that they had initially been matched with but that doesn't necessarily mean the process doesn't work for the right people it won't work for everyone but the right participants could get a lot out of it seems to me what's really positive about that as well is as you say shifting the focus away from making or creating a family with a child in it is not about commitment to the other person, it's about commitment to the child. And if you can prioritise commitment to the child above commitment to the other person, as you say, who you might have very complex, difficult, romantic or emotional feelings about, that can only be for the better, surely. And we say that, obviously, as we're family lawyers, we prioritise children above everything else we do. And so maybe we're being a little bit clinical about it. But I don't think there's anything negative about that. I think that's a really positive message to send. I think people need to be kind of informed about the different kind of families that are out there, the different mechanisms of creating children. There are lots of people who desperately want children and don't feel that they've met the right person or haven't got the stability. And actually that's something that isn't necessarily the case and can be corrected quite easily. So I do think that's a really important message and I'd be really, really keen for further programming, maybe not in the gimmicky way of, you know, you have to have a baby with them at the end of it type thing, but just the message of non-traditional forms of creating children and it being about co-parenting and committing to the child I think is really really positive yeah I would say about the program I, I saw some commentary online saying it's a little bit first date if you just cut through the reality tv shtick of it the issues at the heart of it are really very interesting so give it a chance watch the whole thing and then come back to us with your thoughts my second recommendation is from Rana Azim at 42 Bedford Row who runs the website it's a lawyer's life and she has produced a short film, which I watched last night, that was really, really interesting. And thank you very much to Rana, because I think she only made it available, intended to make it available for one day yesterday. But I contacted her to say I wanted to talk about it on the podcast. So she's keeping it online on the website for a couple of weeks to allow our listeners to have a look at it. And it's a short film called Never Had You. And it follows a family barrister. It starts off from her day when she's getting out of the house and going to work and she seems quite despondent and then she goes into chambers with her pupil and has a conference with a client who is involved in care proceedings because their child has sustained a number of very serious non-accidental injuries and you see in great detail the interaction between the barrister and the client and the barrister is saying trying to explore the reasons why the client is so resistant to accepting the possibility of her partner inflicting the injuries and of her partner being abusive so it explores why women may want to stay with abusive men who may have harmed their children but there are also a lot of other nuances to it which are really interesting the discussion in conference is interspersed with clips from the barrister's personal life and there's one clip where she's at her desk having lunch and she has a fertility clinic brochure on her desk so there's this really interesting interplay about 
our personal lives as legal professionals and how they impact upon our reading of our cases, because much of family law is something that we will often deeply empathize or relate with because they relate to issues that we are experiencing ourselves. How must it feel, for example, to be having difficulties conceiving your own child and then having to advise someone who may have actively allowed their child to come to harm and refuse to see that. I can imagine that the barrister in that case would have felt that there was this enormous injustice that she would want a child so desperately and can't have one and there's someone else who has had a child and isn't able to care for that child. So there are some really really interesting nuances there, interesting dynamics and I like the exploration of what it is for us as family lawyers rather than just sticking to the strict legal issues and the issues relating to the clients yeah certainly very interesting I I really want to watch it I saw your tweet about it so I will definitely watch it I'm not sure it's something that necessarily appeals to me I tend to be a bit distant about things that explore the personal lives of barristers because I don't like to feed into that trope of barristers being the most interesting people on the planet because spoiler alert we're not but it sounds like it's quite a good nuanced exploration of at least the issues in family law so I'll definitely definitely watch it my recommendation just pivoting entirely from the whole conversation that we've been having since the beginning is a TED talk that I watched yesterday and it's called the cure for burnout brackets hint it isn't self-care and again this isn't something that necessarily I would normally watch I would definitely leave this to Malvika in terms of understanding well-being and welfare at the bar but it came up on my Twitter feed I really liked the look of it I know one of the speakers um, so it's done by twin sisters called Emily and Amelia Nagowski, who are Americans. And Emily is an author who has previously written, she's a sex therapist, and she's previously written various books about familial and sexual relationships. So I'm familiar vaguely with her work. And the talk is very short, it's like 20 minutes. And it's really good about what the physiological and physical impacts of stress are, and how they are unrelated to these stressors. So she talks about how burnout is a symptom of ongoing stress but how separating the body from the stressor is not necessarily the cure for that so she uses a really clever analogy which is being chased by a lion when you are about to be chased by a lion you run so the stressor is the lion but the stress the physiological stress is the running is the actual physical symptom of the stress and she was like obviously we don't get chased by lions anymore but there are various other things that our body reacts to that even if we're separated from the thing, the body continues to react to. And it's, it's really clever. And she talks about how the cure for burnout is not about, therefore, just relaxing. If you tell your body, just relax, just stop. It doesn't work that way because your body's already engaged in this mode of kind of fight or flight. So it's about doing physical and emotional things to separate yourself from the stress as opposed to the stress door. And she talks about the idea that feelings and sitting with difficult feelings is really important. If you have a particularly uncomfortable or difficult feeling, you should sit with it for a while and work through it because, and again, I think this is a good way of putting it, feelings are tunnels, not caves. So you have to move through the darkness to get to the light rather than sit in the darkness the whole time. And for me, as someone who's kind of starting to explore uncomfortable and difficult feelings and and definitely burnout and stress, especially after the year we've had, I did find it really helpful and it's, it's quite academic, but it's very helpful to think about the way in which your body physically responds to stress but also what the best ways to cope with that stress are and they can be physical exercise always works obviously but also emotional in terms of surrounding yourself with people who value you and value your time and are able to give you space that you need rather than constantly being on high alert in both your personal and professional life so I'd really recommend it I'll put the link in the show notes yeah I like I find it interesting the idea of sitting there with your feelings rather than avoiding your feelings in a sense or just thinking that if you distract yourself enough then it's something that you don't have to deal with and all that's doing is just delaying the stress you're not actually dealing with the stress and I do think that in our self-care culture and I don't like the term self-care or certainly I think that it's become diluted or appropriated in ways that are just really really frothy and fluffy now but a lot of our solutions for dealing with poor mental health is distraction is you know even things like going for a run or do you know have a bath or watch something on Netflix that's just delaying the issue it's not dealing with the issue once you've gone for the run and had a bath you're going to come back and still feel the same stress as before so I think it's interesting in terms of how to actually process feelings which 
we are probably unwilling as barristers to do because emotional invulnerability is something that is valued uh, and, and that's the way that barristers are supposed to be we're supposed to be strong and not show any emotion and to not have any emotions to work through but it's not sustainable so i will look i will look at that ted talk and see if i learn anything new the good thing about it just lastly is that it talks specifically about the definition of burnout which is something that i see on kind of lawyer barrister twitter a lot where people tweet and say does anyone else feel like they're working really hard and getting nothing done or does anyone else feel like they're constantly doing stuff but feeling like they're doing nothing that's literally the definition of burnout is getting increasingly diminishing returns for increasingly harder work and everyone feels that way it's not about you know particularly any diagnosis or a particular illness it's about a condition that you suffer when you put your body through things that they can't cope with and this idea that you're constantly doing more and more and you're feeling less motivated and feeling less satisfaction from the stuff that you do is burnout and that can be cured by various different things and self-care like you say bath and tea is not that so it's important for I think lawyers particularly and anyone else to equip themselves with the definitions and the language to talk about how they're feeling and what that means. Yeah, and to not be afraid of that language. I think sometimes people are resistant to saying, well, I feel burned out because it feels like some form of weakness. I mean, it is a, it's an aggressive term, you know, saying that I am burned out makes it sound like you are, you're incapable of going on or something like that. And people don't want to associate themselves with that, even if that's the lived reality, but it's not something that you do have to be afraid of. It happens. And it's something that you can process and get over. It's not something that's going to be an insurmountable obstacle, but not being afraid of the terms in the first place is, is where to start. Okay, tweet of the week. Do you want to kick us off? My tweet of the week is from Max Davy at Max Davy. And he writes, in a Zoom meeting about a child and all the professionals keep calling the parent mum, even though her name is literally on screen and she is a person with an actual name. Do not do this, guys. I 100% am guilty of this. I have definitely been called out on it by the odd judge, but not most judges, where they say that they prefer for me to use the parents' names rather than saying father or mother. In all honesty, and I understand why parents might find that dehumanizing, it's just because I'm running through so many cases day to day, I have a different case every day, Half the time, I can't remember what the parents' names are. I am totally conscious of that. And I end up being one of those people who, in position statements, say I'm going to refer to them as mother and father and no discourtesy is meant by it. And I think that for some parents, it's not an issue. But for some parents, of course, it will be. And I also think it's the context in which it's done. If it's in a meeting like this one where they are present and they are participating in the discussions, then to talk about them as if they're not there, I think is very different to referring to them during submissions in court when they are not an active participant in the submissions but maybe the solution to it is to speak to them and say would you mind if I refer to you as mother or father or would you prefer it if I call you by your name I'm happy to do whatever you think you would prefer. Yeah I struggle with this a little bit because I think the rationale for it is it's you're defined by your relationship to the child so it puts the child central to the proceeding so even mother's mother would be called the maternal grandmother because that's their relationship to the child and so I think it it's helpful in that sense because everyone knows where they stand in relation to these children or child and I think that's positive I do I think that's helpful to put the child at the center but at the same time I think what you just said is really sensible speak to them they're human beings with names and lives and backgrounds that you don't understand and saying to them look this is what we normally do we refer to people by their relationship to the child that's probably what the judge will do that's probably what the professionals will do I hope that's okay if that's a problem let me know and I'll tell them and I think that would be the most humanizing way of doing it is saying this is why we do it it puts the child at the center and allows the court to focus on who's at the center of the proceedings but if it makes you uncomfortable or you feel erased please let me know. That's part of my job is to support you. And I think it touches again on what we were talking about a couple of episodes ago about lawyers' abilities to listen to their clients and to actually represent their clients in a humanising and empathetic way. We probably think we are because of all the things we're juggling and trying to make it sound good and trying to do the best we can for what might be a difficult case. But there are also human elements that all of us can work on all the time. And it's really important to put those in your mind as well, because it's not our experience in the same way that it's a family's experience of court we find it very comfortable. We're professional users. We go there all the time and we speak to judges every day. Other people don't. And it's very difficult to bridge that gap sometimes in just a kind of humanizing, empathetic way. And I do often forget, I'll admit to tell my clients that I'm going to call them mum or dad on the hearing. 
And I think that sometimes might be upsetting. So I think it's definitely worth remembering that just mentioning it to a client to say, this is what I'm going to do. It's not about you. It's a, it's a choice that we make as professionals might be even more helpful. I actually anticipate that some clients might prefer it because it reiterates that they are this child's parent. Certainly in care proceedings, some parents feel marginalized if the child, for instance, has been removed into foster care and their advocates will constantly be railing on about they remain the parents and they continue to hold parental responsibility and they should be appraised of any significant decisions in the child's life. So by repeatedly referring to them as mother or father, you remind everyone that they still play an important role in the child's life. I also think there's a distinction between calling them mum and dad and mother and father. That might be an artificial distinction I'm drawing, but I do think that they're that mum and dad starts to verge on disrespectful because these are formal proceedings, they are court hearings, and calling them mum and dad sounds a bit flippant. I'm definitely guilty of it, but it's something that I'm going to try and be a bit more conscious about. Yeah, I agree. I think there's power in language. We know that as advocates, there is power in language, and everything means something, words still mean things. So it's important just to keep everyone abreast of why you're using the language we're using and what words mean, because words are important, as we've just realised from the case I told you about. My tweet is a funny one, just went on a nice note. It's from Marage at M417EAD, who talks about, well, it says this and then I'll explain it. Hearing before district judge in county court, district judge is a former solicitor, which may be relevant. District judge, could you address your learned friend's point about, and then counsel interrupts and says, I think you'll find she's just my friend. District judge, I think you'll find you don't have many friends at all if you continue in that vein. And that's actually very funny. So in court, you're meant to call, well, meant with quotation marks because it's obviously ridiculous but you're meant to call counsel or barristers when you refer to them my learned friend so i'm in reference to my learned friend second point for example if that person representing the other side is a solicitor then you say my friend and that is obviously a very unfair and ridiculous distinction but to be this barrister who points out the distinction in the middle of the judge talking you've got to be a particular kind of person to do that and i think it just goes to the heart of this idea that barristers are in some way more high or and mighty than solicitors when actually we all do very similar work, especially in the family courts. So I agree with that judge. You're not going to have many friends if you continue to speak about solicitors in that way. Also, we need them for work. What are you thinking? Anyway, I thought it was quite funny. I did see that tweet. I did find it really funny. I hadn't heard about this until I saw these tweets because I just refer to everyone as learned friend if I can't remember their name or if I'm worried about mispronouncing their name or if I just can't remember who they are I just say my learned friend to everyone there is a lot of snobbery at the bar about the distinction between barristers and solicitors snobbery that is not warranted because solicitors are so integral to the profession and quite honestly they do a lot of the work that I don't think I would be able to handle the amount of client contact they have they have no professional barrier between them and the client which means that you know we sit here talking about vicarious trauma and burnout and things like that whereas the pressure on them is relentless because they have that constant client communication there are so many elements of being a solicitor which I think I would be so poorly equipped to manage that I'm a barrister probably because I would be a terrible solicitor and the two sides of the profession are so integral to making the entire justice system work so barristers need to get off their high horse and refer to everyone as my learned friend because I can certainly tell you that some of my instructing solicitors are considerably more learned than me, if not all of them. I completely agreed. Significantly more learned than I have ever been. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As Malvika says, we're probably going to have about four more episodes after this one before the end of the season, so make sure you tune in. Thanks for joining us this week. Bye, guys. (laughs) 